We welcome Dr. Riza Asmat. Dr. Asmat is a full professor in political science at the University of Alberta. He has previously held faculty position in management, sociology, and political science at the University of Toronto, Melbourne, and Oxford, and he has worked for think tanks, consultancy, development agencies, and NGOs in the United States, Canada, UK, Australia, and China. He was formerly trained in philosophy, public policy, international studies, and diplomacy, and social and political science, as well as in various East Asian and European language. It's my pleasure to welcome you now, Dr. Asma. First and foremost, I'm going to be talking about white privilege, and I'll be looking at it, drawing inspiration from the Canadian context, and then bringing the sort of case studies to Europe, where I'll be looking at Norway and Poland, and then I'm going to bring back the lessons learned from there to sort of apply to the Canadian context there. So in the next uh, few minutes, that's my sort of uh, um, sort of goal here. It's an impossible task in this short time, so what I'll do is I'll actually paste the, uh, the several, I've, I've done two working papers, uh, which is taking white privilege and privileged conceptions and applying it to Europe as well as applying it to China. So if you're really curious afterwards, uh, you can see the papers in the chat there. So this is a, a project that's really trying to understand privilege in a multicultural society. And especially within the North American context, we're looking at white privilege. I have to acknowledge the fact that I am a, I'm a trained sociologist. When we talk about whiteness, that's problematic as a concept to begin with. So there's a host of issues there. It even got to the point where sociologists even gave up on trying to define what an ethnicity is or what an ethnic group is. Uh, and the same holds true for white or whiteness. I am completely and aptly uh, acknowledge the fact that white as, as a construct is problematic. You know, as I talk through this sort of uh, presentation here, I want you to try and bear in mind that I'm looking at it as a concept. I'm looking at it as a concept between at least in the Canadian terms, you might say uh, visible ethnic minorities versus, say, the dominant groups in society. And even that might be contested, but we're looking at power relations between a white group versus a non-white group or whatever sort of construct you want to look in terms of the uh, us versus the other. So when we look at the saliency of white privileges in, in a multicultural society, it's really developed um, in, in, in a Western sort of concept. And so it really developed as a salient concept within the collective consciousness of Western nations. You know, we can trace back to the work such as Peggy McIntosh or Ruth Frankenberg, who are really trying to describe the sort of life course experiences and the variances in socioeconomic outcomes between, quote, white and non-white populations. And so crudely put, white privilege is this notion that the white population, however we would like to define them, in aggregate, have more advantages on the basis of being white. And so perhaps the most vivid example of this sort of hyper-awareness surrounding white privilege is situated within distinct cultural milieus, primarily in Canada and Australia, the US and UK, surrounding ideas such as concepts such as wokeness or political correctness or cancel culture. And in fact, you know, amongst our students, this has been quite uh, um, uh, some galvanizing for many uh, politically left young individuals in the university campuses. So for those who participate in this sort of cultural milieu, an emphasis on, is, is really on being aware of one's own privilege, advocating for progressive and liberal societal changes, notably for marginalized and hidden groups, and exposing those actions or languages that are deemed sexist or racist or, or homophobic or otherwise problematic. 
you know, we've also seen actions where individuals are being called out for their past actions or, or speech and have suffered reputation loss, even employment termination. So there's been a plethora of, of both public discourse and intellectual examination about white privilege in, in ethno-racially diverse settler societies such as Canada. Um, and, and discussions pertaining to societies which, which traditionally have low levels of ethno-racial diversity are less prevalent. So if I speak about uh, white privilege in Poland, or if I speak about white privilege in Norway, um, it's often seen as quite alien. And I'll get to that in a moment when I talk about the case studies. So I'm going to disaggregate white privilege in two kinds of strands. There's a popular discourse and there's an academic discourse. They do interrelate to some extent, but um, they do have different outcomes in many respects. So I'll first deal with the popular culture, that is. So discourse surrounding white privilege, at least in the Canadian context, generally centers around broad popular culture sort of manifestations on ethno-racial relations. So for instance, there's activist organizations who talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, in the entertainment and arts industry, their television shows, movies, or comedians and musicians or artists have raised awareness of privilege and ethno-racial injustices through their own work. Now, it's really interesting to note the public's reaction in Canada. It's been decidedly mixed. Supporters have either praised it, um, and they said these, 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 these actors, these, these, these figures in popular culture are being, quote, woke to their privilege. They're publicly acknowledging it, and in principle, helping to further a, a productive dialogue or discourse on the advantages or disadvantages, rather, faced by non-whites. Whereas critics can be seen in two different camps. The first group talks about uh, these acts of privilege checking as merely cheap talk, and these figures could and should be using their influence and wealth to actively address inequalities between whites and non-whites. On the other hand, the second camp dismisses the idea of white privilege completely. They reject the notion that white individuals, or however we're going to classify them by that is, derive any advantage from their whiteness solely. Whereas if we look at the academic discourse, we really see that it focuses on, on the research on unearned advantages, quote unquote, awarded to whites in society, and conversely, the challenges faced by visible ethno-racial groups, rather. I'll give you a great example. When we look at Macintosh's um, analysis, although it's almost three decades old, it's still quite highly informative. You know, amongst the 43 examples uh, she utilized, the most prominent being what sort of advantages do whites have relative to, to non-whites? The example she talked about was being able to find a bandage in one's own skin tone, not being racially profiled while shopping, finding academic courses that discuss the history and culture of people who resemble you. Someone like Macintosh, these were sort of the micro level under understandings of what privilege is. Now, many of the earlier works also focus on the role of exclusionary discrimination played in the functioning of white privilege, uh, but they never generally discuss how the white population accrued that privilege. And so, you know, there's a really kind of a, a quote by Leonard in, in 2004, who talks about this gap philosophically, which says, being white is analogous to traveling down the road with money being placed into your pocket, absent your awareness. It's this idea of the lack of awareness of the privilege that one has. And so we can argue that one of the, perhaps the, the most visible and prominent display of white privilege can be seen in the labor market outcomes. A few years ago, I wrote a book called The Ethnic Penalty, where it was looking at the education to labor market experiences of minorities in the Toronto context. So basically, you know, it's just your standard returns to education, uh, sort of analysis from an economic standpoint, but also it's talking about interviews and looking at what sort of experiences the, the, the visible ethnic minority populations have versus a, the non-visible minority populations have, and why there are variations in labor market 
outcomes in spite of the fact of similar education levels. So this is a form of privilege in many respects in the Canadian context. I'm going to go through the Norway and Polish example very quickly, but as I said, I, I did paste it on, on the uh, chat, uh, the, the actual papers, which, which goes into greater length. Um, I'll just introduce these two case studies and then tell you what I've learned from these two case studies. Norway is really fascinating as a society in transition, not only from a demographic standpoint, but there's a, a very slow and increasing awareness of whiteness and white privilege in the nation. Historically, Norway has been a highly homogeneous society from the 1960s onwards, but there's been subsequent waves of immigration that's led to greater ethno-racial heterogeneity. And what we see here is a similar situation as many other jurisdictions. It's migrants came who were more visible came for labor market reasons. So for instance, in the 60s, we saw a secondary labor market drove immigrant cohorts, primarily of Turkish and, and Pakistani men who came to work in the oil sector. In the 70s, we saw a decline in labor market migration, owing largely to the 1973 oil crisis. And in the 80s and 90s, we saw a large influx of asylum seekers fleeing war, predominantly from Iran or Chile or, or Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Somalia as, as the most prominent examples. And in the last two decades to present day, we see a massive influx of Polish and Lithuanian immigrants, as well as continued family migration. And what's really interesting is that the demographics of, of this country is shifting dramatically. Since 2004, for example, the percentage of persons born in Norway with only Norwegian parents and grandparents shrunk from 85% to 71%. Uh, about 28.6% of the population have some foreign background. 53% are first-generation immigrants. And we're really seeing this in terms of the shifting demographics when we look at labor market outcomes, where there's a growing ethnic penalty. That is, there's a, um, a discord between one's education and human capital and formal training um, versus what the labor market outcomes are on relative terms. And so we're seeing an ethnic penalty for both the white and non-white immigrants, as well as exclusionary discrimination against immigrant groups by the native population. So the paper talks about the consequences of that and what we can learn from that and, and bring it back to the Canadian example. I ask you to just uh, pause with me for a moment as I, I, I introduce the Polish case and then I'll give you some of the lessons learned. Similarly, we can say that Poland is one of the most homogeneous nations in Europe and until recently has had higher rates of immigration than immigration. In part, this is why if I talk about white privilege in Poland and I speak to my Polish colleagues about that, it's as though there's no salience here at the surface level anyways, because understanding of ethnicity, race and racism themselves only exist within a very narrow conceptual framework. So both in, in public and academic discourse in Poland, uh, they depict, the depiction of racism is quite rare and generally focuses on, on non-white immigrants' experiences. So the extremely scant research that's been done on the experiences of visible ethno-racial groups in Poland paints quite an interesting story. Racism in Poland is a manifestation of both violence being targeted at perceived outsiders and in the forms of everyday practices of discrimination and exclusion. And this is particularly true for a very, very small Muslim community that's extremely small relative to the size of the country. What we see here is that in the Polish case, uh, the ruling Law and Justice Party has fueled anti-Muslim sentiment to further their own political ends. And it's quite an outlier in the European context, but it's still quite interesting to see how privilege is understood. So what I found was three things, you know, so again, I just want to introduce these cases and tell you what I actually found in terms of how privilege can be understood um, using the Polish and, and, and Norwegian case and try to bring it back to the Canadian case. What the experiences of Norway and Poland really suggest in a nutshell is that why privilege is determined by three elements. 
First, there's a clear evidence of an ethno-racial hierarchy, whereby those who are constructed as white receive increased privileges relative to non-whites. It's a relational sort of construct here in terms of the privileges. So it is plausible non-white groups are doing much better than ever before. But their, their, their frame of reference is not to other white non-white groups' experiences, but rather it's to the white group's uh, experiences who are seen as much, priv much more privileged than their own. So we do see, uh, at least in, in, in Norwegian, in the Polish case, is that um, whites are receiving increased privileges in the geographical, cultural, and political realities they occupy. Second, there is a disenfranchised established minority population uh, in, in both societies where uh, those who are phenologically different than the dominant population and who, and who through the articulation of their dissatisfaction begins or sustains a public debate on their marginal position in society. Third, there's a clear link between the dominant population and the past exploitation of non-whites through acts such as colonialism and slavery and imperialism. We see Norway, for example, possesses all of these three elements. There's been a growing awareness of racism and, and ethno-racial privilege within both popular and academic discourse, although it has not been as salient as it is in contexts such as Canada. This can be explained by the fact that there's this sort of historical myth that Norway as an oppressed nation is not tainted by association with colonialism and slavery. And, and it's relatively recent, there's an influx of non-white migrants into Norway. I would argue that over time, we're going to see white privilege, at least as a concept, as, in, as looking at through relational terms between uh, the who has power, who does not have power, even to having a bandage in one's own skin tone, for example, as, as Macintosh would talk about. We're going to see white privilege becoming more significant, at least in, in those kinds of non-traditionally ethno-racially diverse uh, societies such as Norway. Poland, in contrast, has none of these elements at present. So white privilege is likely to not really to emerge as a dominant concept. But it does not mean it's not salient. So if we look at the Ukrainian population in Poland, if we look at many of the migrant sort of populations in Poland who are uh, white, uh, they do have characteristics that are very similar to the non-white populations in Canada. Insofar, they are in a marginalized positioning. And so there is a privilege amongst the Polish population relative to, say, the Ukrainian ones as well. So I guess that's the sort of understanding I wanted to, to bear, bear fruit as, as my concluding thought, is this idea that when we talk about white privilege, you know, there is an ethno-racial, or rather a racial group, and we could say that's white or non-white, um, although it's not very helpful for a host of reasons. What I want you to see is the sort of relationship conceptually between who holds the power in society and who doesn't, who has, and it comes from the macro level to the micro level, where you have these kind of power differentials between uh, the privileged and the non-privileged group. And I think what the Canadian context really helps us is to at least, you know, A, have a conceptual framework to understand this relationship uh, of power differentials between the white and non-white groups. And second, as the first presenter was talking about, there is a sort of a multicultural philosophy, a bicultural philosophy, intercultural philosophy. There are philosophies that can inform public policies that we can utilize from the Canadian experiences and at least try to um, engage with that in, in, in traditionally non-diverse societies such as Poland and uh, Norway. As in one of my papers, I talk about China as well. So it's a very similar situation there. So thank you for uh, listening to my, my very brief comments on this.